Section 46 of 93 by Victor Hugo, translated by Aline Delano. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Part 3, Book 2, Chapter 11, Terrible as the Antique. This implacable voice was in truth the voice of Simordan. The younger and less imperative one was that of Govan. The Marquis de Lantenac had not been mistaken in his recognition of the Abbé Simordan. In this district ensanguined by civil war, Simurdan, as we have said, had in a few weeks become famous. No man had won a more baleful notoriety. Men would say, Marat in Paris, Chalier at Lyon, Simurdan in the Vendée. All the veneration which the Abbé Simurdan had formerly enjoyed was now turned to his dishonor. This is what a priest who unfrocks himself may fairly expect. Simurdan excited a feeling of horror. The austere are unfortunate, inasmuch as their own acts seemed to condemn them. Could their consciences be revealed, men might perhaps absolve them. A Lycurgus misunderstood may seem like a Tiberius. However, the fact remains that these two men, the Marquis de Lantenac and the Abbé Simordan, were equally matched in regard to the hatred they inspired. The maledictions hurled at Simordan by the royalists were counterbalanced by the execrations which the republicans heaped upon Lantenac. Each of those men seemed a monster in the eyes of the opposite camp. In fact, by a singular coincidence, it chanced that while Prieur de la Marne at Granville had set a price on the head of Lantenac, Charette at Noirmoutier had likewise set one on that of Simordan. We may observe that these two men, the Marquis and the priest, represented in a certain degree one and the same man. The bronze mask of civil war has a double profile, one of which looks toward the past, the other toward the future. Lantenac wore the former, Simordan the latter. Only the bitter sneer of Lantenac was shrouded in darkness, whereas on Simordan's fatal brow might be discerned a glimmer of the dawn. Meanwhile the besieged Tourg was enjoying a respite. Thanks to the intervention of Govan, they had agreed upon a sort of truce for twenty-four hours. The Imanus had indeed been well informed. In consequence of Simordan's requisitions, Govan was now in command of four thousand five hundred men, national guards as well as troops of the line, with which he surrounded Lantenac in the Tourg, and could, moreover, bring to bear against the fortress a masked battery of six cannon, planted on the edge of the forest towards the tower, together with an open battery of six on the plateau towards the bridge. He had succeeded in springing the mine, and a breach had been made at the foot of the tower. Thus, on the expiration of the twenty-four hours' truce, the struggle would begin again under the following conditions. On the plateau and in the forest were four thousand five hundred men, against nineteen in the tower. History may find the names of the nineteen besieged in the placards posted against outlaws. We may possibly come across them. It would have pleased Simordan had Govan consented to accept the rank of adjutant general in order to command these four thousand five hundred men, which was practically an army. But the latter refused, saying, We will consider that matter after Lantenac is taken. I have won no promotion as yet. These important commands, held by officers of subordinate rank, were, moreover, in accordance with republican customs. Bonaparte, later on, while as yet only a colonel of artillery, was at the same time commander-in-chief of the army of Italy. It was a strange fate for the Tour Govan to be attacked by one Govan, while defended by another member of the same family. Hence a certain reluctance in the attack, but none in the defense. For Monseigneur de Lantenac was a man who spared nothing. Accustomed as he had been to live at Versailles, he had no feeling of regard for the Tourgue, which he scarcely knew. He had sought refuge there simply because he had no other resource. 
but he would have destroyed it without a scruple. Govan felt more respect for it. The bridge was the weak point of the fortress, but in the library above it were the family records. Now if the assault began there, the burning of the bridge would be inevitable, and it seemed to Govan that to burn the records would be like attacking his ancestors. The Turg was the ancestral manor of the Govan family. From this tower started all their fiefs of Brittany, as those of France from the Tower of the Louvre. It was the center around which clustered the family associations of the Govans. He himself was born there, and now, led by the tortuous chances of fate, the grown man had come to attack the venerable walls that had protected his childhood. Was it an impious act to lay this dwelling in ashes? Perhaps his own cradle was stored away in some corner of the granary over the library. Certain trains of thought assume the nature of emotions. Before the old family mansion, Govan felt himself deeply moved, and it was in consequence of this feeling that he had spared the bridge. Contenting himself with making it impossible for the enemy to sally forth, or attempt an escape at this point of egress, he held the bridge in check by a battery, and chose the opposite side for the attack. Hence the mining and sapping at the foot of the tower. Simodan had allowed him to take his own course, meanwhile reproaching himself, for these Gothic antiquities were odious to his severe soul, and he was no more indulgent towards buildings than towards human beings. Sparing a castle was the first step in the direction of mercy, and he knew that mercy was Govan's weak point. Simodan, as we are aware, kept watch over him, and arrested his progress down this slope so fatal in his eyes. And yet even he, and he acknowledged it to himself with a sort of indignation, had been unable to see the Turg again without a secret emotion. He was affected by the sight of that schoolroom containing the first books in which he had taught Govan to read. He had been the curé of the neighboring village, Parinier, had occupied an upper room in the castle on the bridge. It was in the library that he held little Govan between his knees and taught him the alphabet. Within these four old walls he had seen his beloved pupil, the child of his soul, growing up to manhood, and watched the development of his mind. Was he about to burn and destroy this library, this castle, these walls wherein he had so often blessed the child? He had spared them, but it had not been done without compunction. He had allowed Govan to begin the siege from the opposite point. The tower might have been called the savage side of the Turg, and the library its civilized side. Simordan had allowed Govan to make the breach only in the former. This ancient castle in the midst of the revolution had, after all, only resumed its feudal customs in being at the same time attacked and defended by a Govan. The history of the Middle Ages is but a record of wars between kinsmen. Eteocles and Polynices are Gothic as well as Grecian, and Hamlet but repeats in Elsinore what Orestes did in Argos. End of section 46